Welcome to this Jeremy Bamba and White House Farm podcast season two. In this episode, we discuss Jim Carr and his son Robbie, who both had an active involvement in the investigation into Jeremy and were recruited to assist in the unauthorised gathering of information on, and surveillance of, Jeremy and Brett Collins. Jim Carr, also known as James, worked for the Bamba and Beauflower families as the manager of the family business, OC Road Caravan Site, situated in picturesque Haybridge in Essex. This is a position he had held for approximately 18 years at the time of the tragedies. Ownership of this business was divided between Jeremy and his mother June and June's sister Pamela, along with her daughter Anne Eaton. Jim Carr gave evidence in a statement that his wife met June during their time serving in India during the war, and he had in turn known the Bamba family for approximately 25 years, although some of that time he lived abroad. On his return to the UK in 1967, Jim was offered a position as site manager at the caravan site. Although his wife had a close friendship with June, she never confided in Mrs Carr about any personal matters or difficulties with the children. He also stated that the same applied to his relationship with Neville, explaining that the employee relationship makes some things rather awkward. Although Jim saw Sheila and Jeremy occasionally when they were children, he did not have a relationship with them and said that in later years he only saw Jeremy working on the site. During 1984, Jim had been absent from work for several months, suffering from hepatitis, resuming his duties in March 1985. It wasn't long after this that a burglary took place at the caravan site in which £980 was taken from the office. According to his statement dated 10th September 1985, Jim suspected Jeremy may have been responsible for the burglary, but had said nothing at the time. However, by the time the statement was made, Julie Mugford had given evidence regarding her and Jeremy's involvement, and Jeremy had immediately confessed to the police when questioned about it. Jeremy maintained that as part owner of the business, he had concerns over the lackadaisical security at the site, and the only reason this had been done was to prove the point that security arrangements needed to improve. Jeremy believed that the current arrangements were old-fashioned, and that new technology would help keep the business secure. Robert Bowflower, Jim Carr and his son Robbie, also known as Robert, confirmed Jeremy's security concerns in their evidence. Jim set out in a statement written in September 1985 that he also then became very security-minded, suggesting the rather ridiculous installation of security cameras at the site. Robbie, a serving police sergeant in the Metropolitan Police Force, based at Mill Hill Station at the time, gave more detailed evidence about Jeremy, in which he said that during a visit with Neville to Jim's home, whilst he was there, I formed the opinion that he was very effeminate in his mannerisms and speech. During our discussion, the subject of the security of the campsite came up, and Jeremy seemed anxious to press the point that if he met any burglars there, he would run away. This was obviously an attempt to influence the homophobic officers in the case, to add to the character assassinations of Jeremy, which friends of the wider family did continually. However, the comments by Robbie Carr are the exact opposite of what Robert Bowflower told the police about conversations regarding security on the site. When he stated, I recall that after one of these meetings, I was discussing the matter with Jeremy alone, when I said to Jeremy, you must involve the police and not try and do these jobs yourself. If you find yourself outnumbered, you have no backup. 
If you go armed, do you shoot to wound or do you shoot to kill? If you shoot and wound, you have set yourself up as a target for life. If you shoot to kill, it's a crime your conscience will not allow you to live with. Jeremy then made an extraordinary statement. Oh no, Uncle Bobby, that wouldn't worry me. I could easily kill my parents. This remark shocked me and I said, Don't be so stupid. And I then walked off. Of course, we can now prove the conversation with Robert Bowflower did not happen, as we set out in the podcast about him. But it seems that undermining Jeremy's character, any way they chose, was uppermost in the evidence of some individuals, and conflicting accounts of specific events were the polar opposite of each other. We believe that evidence was continually fed to Mr Carr by Robert Bowflower, as they had developed a very close relationship since August and the tragedies. Knowing this, Robert sought the assistance of Jim and Robbie in conducting their own illicit investigations into Jeremy and his associates. Robert Bowflower wrote in his diaries that he had discussed the treasures that Jeremy was removing from White House Farm with Jim, who then persuaded Robbie to have Jeremy follow to see where the goods from White House Farm were being taken. Robert requested that anything suspicious should be reported back to either himself or Jim. An entry in one version of Robert's diary reads, Asked Jim to get Robbie to arrange for Sheila's flat to be watched and for movements of family treasures and Jeremy's friend Brett or anything else suspicious. A second version of the diary sets out, Arranged through friends in London for Jeremy to be watched. Essex Police documents revealed that police officer Robbie Carr did as he had been requested to do by his father and Robert. Essex Police message reports confirm that Carr instigated the watching of Jeremy by the police prior to his first arrest. Two Essex Police actions and messages set out that Police Sergeant Carr had indeed been watching Jeremy and reported his actions to his colleagues in the Metropolitan Police, who in turn informed Essex Police. Brett Collins and Jay Bamber were concerned in taking stolen property, furniture, to S. Bamber's flat in vehicles. Robbie made reports to his father Jim and Robert, who immediately contacted DS Stan Jones. An entry in version 2 of Robert's diary makes this perfectly clear, as he wrote, I was in telephone communication with Jones later that night to report to him that Jeremy was seen loading furniture, etc., onto a yellow Datsun and offloading it at an antique shop around the corner in London. Gave him the car number and description of men involved. Told him I was far from satisfied with progress of this inquiry and that I was writing to complain to the chief constable. He did not try to discourage me. There was nothing criminal or sinister in the fact that Jeremy was taking small items and trinkets from White House Farm. He was not stealing them, nor was he selling them, as they were taken for the sole purpose of safekeeping, as we will explain. On 12th of August 1985, the executor of the estates, Basil Cock, took it upon himself to request that a representative from Sotheby's auction house should attend White House Farm to value the contents. Mr Cock gave this evidence to the police in a statement dated 16th of September 1985, in which he set out that I also contacted Sotheby's to ask them to inspect the contents to determine anything of high value. Mr Stancliffe from Sotheby's attended the farm with his assistant on the 14th of August and pointed out items of interest and gave a valuation of these. At that time, Mr Stancliffe took a valuable Edward Lear painting for safekeeping. Also documented in Mr Stancliffe's statement is the fact that on the 28th of August 1985, 
Jeremy attended his office with Brett Collins, and at this time he was in possession of items which I had seen at the farm on my visit. I took possession of these items which I listed on a property receipt. I next saw Jeremy Bamber again by appointment the following day, Thursday the 29th of August 1985, when he was again in the Australian's company. I again took possession of items he had in his possession from the farm. All property received from the Bamba estate is recorded at Sotheby's in the name of the sole executor, Mr B. J. Cock of Messrs. Butt Cousins, and Jeremy Bamba clearly understood that none of this property would be sold under his name. Monies from the sale of any of these items will be paid to the Bamba estate under the control of Mr Cock. The items of value which were taken by Jeremy to Sotheby's for safekeeping consisted of 12 valuable items including original oil paintings and watercolours, a quantity of antique silver items, two valuable clocks, rare coins and postage stamps, and an antique 12-bore boss clock shotgun. Mr Stancliffe told the police the reason Jeremy had taken the items to him for safekeeping was that members of his family were coming to lay some form of claim to the property. As we set out in podcasts regarding Robert Bowflower and Anne Eaton, this assertion was correct as they had been removing items of value since they had access to the house on the 10th of August 1985. It is interesting to note Robert failed to disclose to Essex Police that he had unlawfully used the services of a serving police officer to spy on Jeremy in order to obtain information about his activities. Whether or not Robbie did this at the expense of the taxpayer, or in his own time, is unknown. Either way, it seems he abused his position to aid Robert. Not only did Robert instigate surveillance of Jeremy, but he also involved Jim in gaining information regarding Jeremy's friend Brett. Case documents reveal that Robert paid £500, that's over £1,500 in today's money, for background checks to be conducted and a private investigation arranged by Jim. In one version of his diary, Robert wrote, Asked Jim Carr to make inquiries in NZ about the newfound wealth of Brett Collins, one-time snack bar operator, a restaurant proprietor. His brother was a garage owner dealing in executive cars. In a different version, he set out, Asked Jim if he could, through his New Zealand friends, obtain a rundown on Brett Collins and the source of his sudden new riches. Jim Carr suggested a detective agency in NZ I undertook to guarantee £500 and to leave him to deal with it as he thinks best. Brett Collins' brother is a villain and he knows his ways and means of getting in and out of the country without passports and believes that Brett was probably involved, could even have helped Jeremy on the night. Robert paying for the investigation of Brett was done to establish if he could also be implicated along with Jeremy in the murders. In his interview with the City of London Police in 1991, Robert reveals that he also asked a distant relative, Chris Neville, to do checks independently of those being conducted by Jim's contact. He said, I described talking to Brett Collins. The reason for this paragraph was that I was intrigued by him and wanted to know as much about him as possible. Hence my request to Chris Neville, who lived in New Zealand, to find out as much as possible about this man. It would be fair to say that I was highly suspicious of him. The evidence also reveals that Robert Carr was directly involved with interfering with the scene at White House Farm. In Anne Eaton's notes, made prior to writing her statement in 1991, she states, Window in kitchen, 
dirty marks. Robbie, Sergeant Robbie Carr, in kitchen, got out through the same window. DS Jones can't put that in. Why was Robbie Carr climbing in and out of the windows at White House Farm? Was this arranged by DS Jones? And what were they doing? Did they cause any damage to the windows? We simply do not know because neither Robert Carr or Stan Jones included any information about this unauthorised action with the windows of the farmhouse. It is also fact that Robbie was more involved in the investigation than Essex police have been willing to admit, and which Robbie conveniently omitted from his pre-trial statement. He told the post-trial Dickinson inquiry that on the 13th or 14th of August 1985, he visited his father Jim and disclosed to him the number of shots fired in the incident. It appears that this information was disclosed during a meeting he had with Jones, Cook and Miller at Witham Police Station that day. In his interview with DCI Dickinson in November 1986, Robbie revealed that he discussed a number of issues with the three Essex police officers. These things can only have resulted from conversation with the Bowflower and Eatons in the week following the tragedies. It appears that Robbie raises issues on behalf of Robert to implicate or at least to cast suspicion on Jeremy. The issues were numbered as follows. 1. Telephone calls from Jeremy and Mr Bamba. It appears that Robbie was aware that two telephone calls had been made to alert the police to the unfolding events at the farm on the 7th of August 1985. Miller, Cook and Jones told him this information during the undocumented and unrecorded meeting. The issues he raised with Dickinson included 2. Jeremy's motive and greed 3. Surprise that Jeremy said he was attempting to shoot rabbits on the evening before the killings because he claimed Jeremy had previously expressed his distaste for blood sport. 4. Sheila's nature and demeanour 5. The shootings themselves Anne didn't think Sheila was capable of this, particularly as all shots hit the target. This was originally the opinion of the family and not Carr, as he led Dickinson to believe. 6. His doubt of the alibi, the alleged phone call which pointed blame on Sheila and placed Jeremy away from the scene. 7. Robbie said he was aware of a TV programme with similar circumstances and he wondered if Jeremy had seen it. Again, this was an issue raised by Robert Bowflower. 8. There are allegations of Jeremy's use of drugs, and Robbie had his own suspicions. 9. Jeremy had to leave Australia in a hurry, but Robbie didn't know the reason. Again, this information can only have been from the wider family, as they are the ones who referred to this in diaries. 10. Use of Sheila's psychiatric condition as an explanation just seemed too convenient. 11. Robbie was aware that everyone close to the family had strong doubts Sheila had killed the family. It is also of interest to note that on the same day Robbie was reiterating the family's allegations to Miller, Cook and Jones, Robert was in the offices of his solicitor in order to establish how to remove Jeremy from his grandmother's will. Did he think it would have more impact asking a police officer, a family friend, to raise their concerns? This seems reasonable to suggest, especially as Robbie failed to mention this in any of his pre-trial evidence, and Miller and Cook and Jones also failed to disclose this in any evidence. It also appears that Jim Carr gave evidence to Dickinson. However, what he said has never been disclosed. This is known because the interviews undertaken were recorded into books by the inquiry team. The pages were then allocated page numbers for ease of reference. From assessing the material contained in the disclosed books, 
it has been possible to cross-reference the disclosed statements against the books. A number of pages are missing, and this includes a reference in Book 1 at page 67 by Essex Police to the defence team. Also missing from book numbered one are a single page recorded as being written by a witness named as Mr Carr. Examination of the documents has also revealed that Robbie Carr was actively taking witness statements from the wider family during the investigation. This cannot be correct procedure. He was not a member of Essex Police, was involved with the family, and this could have impacted on what was given in evidence to him by these witnesses. It seems obvious the lengths Robert Bowflower was willing to go to to implicate and raise suspicions regarding Jeremy. Conducting private surveillance operations with a serving officer from a different force, payment for additional surveillance of Jeremy's friend by a police officer's father, and undertaking experiments on the kitchen windows, none of which were disclosed to the jury, show the lengths that Robert Bowflower was willing to go to. It is unknown if Robbie Carr still works for the Metropolitan Police or any other force, but his actions were not authorised and highlight another area of corruption in Jeremy's case. If you would like to join our mailing list for the latest updates on the case as they happen, please email us via our website www.jeremy-bamber.co.uk.